For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at What is happening, gang? We are jacked for Ask Bill Anything 3. But you know what you don't want anybody asking you about? That's right. You don't want anybody asking about your male grooming habits. You know why? Because you want everything perfectly situated down there. That's why we recommend more than anything else in the world our partners at Manscaped. They're the leaders in below-the-waist grooming and have partnered with us to make sure you don't gamble on shaving your balls the same way you like to gamble on football. So for everybody in the IFP family, we have an exclusive 20% off promo code for you guys this week at Manscaped. Use the code promo code POLIAN for 20% off and free shipping. That's right, POLIAN, P-O-L-I-A-N at Manscaped to get your 20% off promo code and free shipping today. They've got everything you need to have your situation down there being perfect and question free. Their lawnmower 3.0 is truly a groundbreaking revolution in male grooming. I've used it from the very beginning. I went from one to two to three, and now since we're working with Manscaped, I'm on the 3.0, and I got a report, no issues, no nicks, no cuts, no weird, weird scrapes. It truly is a revolution in male grooming. The other thing I absolutely love is the crop preserver. It's anti-chafing ball deodorant that ensures your afternoon stroll doesn't end with your balls sticking to your legs or smelling like eggs. This truly, as we hit into the summer season, is a vital part of your regime. So I cannot recommend it enough. When you're on Manscaped, check out the Crop Preserver. It's one of the truly underrated items. So what are you waiting for? Head over to Manscaped.com today to get 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code POLIAN. Get 20% off free shipping with the code Polian at Manscaped. That's 20% off with free shipping when you use the code Polian. It's time to turn that team in your pants around with Manscaped. What is happening, gang? We are jacked about Ask Bill Anything 3. But before we dive into that, we want to talk to you about an app that we on the pod absolutely love. That's right. It's Imagine Golf. It's the number one app for the mental game. So Bill loves it. I love it. Rick on vacation this week hopefully is using it as his golf game is garbage. But I think Imagine Golf has the tools necessary to get him up to be a competent player. The app's got over 200,000 downloads, 3,000 five-star reviews, 
reviews and a 4.9 star rating in the App Store. It's truly amazing. The Daily Drive delivers snackable three-minute audio lessons to help you think and play better. And these are audio clips. They're coming from some of the best books in the history of golf, from Harvey Pennock's Little Red Book to Ben Hogan's Five Lessons, How I Play Golf by Tiger Woods, and Don't Choke by Gary Player. You're always debating, where are these books in the house? Who's got them? Do my kids have them? Does my wife have them? This puts some of the greatest lessons from some of the greatest golf books of all time right at your fingertips. So what are you waiting for? Head over to the App Store today and type in Imagine Golf, and you will imagine what is possible. Imagine Golf, it's in the Apple Store. You can get a Seven-day free trial with absolutely no commitment. So what are you waiting for? Head over there now and download Imagine Golf. What is happening, gang? Is that a jingle jangle you hear under the tree? No, it's not because it's spring, but it's our favorite gift to you guys, our listeners. It's Ask Bill Anything 3. In this episode, we hit a boatload of topics, including ownership issues in the NFL, what books Bill thinks we should read, some insight I had never heard before regarding the 2011 season that I think had it happened would have landmark changed the NFL and probably would have been a landmark change as in I don't think Peyton Manning would have ended up going to Denver because I think the Colts would have been a whole lot better that year. So buckle up, sit back, relax. It's the rare opportunity to do some strange hypotheticals with Bill. This is Ask Anything 3 on the Inside Football Podcast. Here we go. The lamp is lit. And guess what, guys? It's not Christmas. It's just Christmas in spring because it's Ask Bill Anything 3. You guys have called for it, and we are here to deliver. So without further ado, we're going to try to get through as many as we can today. Let's get into it with question number one. Bill, with free agency signings about to start, does Bill think the franchise tag system is fair, both from a team and player viewpoints? I do believe in a team's ability to retain their players. Can he explain how the system came about, and does he like it? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to explain it. Um, when we were negotiating the collective bargaining agreement back in in uh, 19 between 1989 and 1993, uh, George Young from the Giants and myself made a pitch to Gene Upshaw, who was then the president of the Players Association, about the idea that every team ought to have the ability to retain its key player. And we use the example of Buffalo and Denver. Buffalo had Jim Kelly. We'd, just, we'd gotten him in 1987 after he'd left originally and gone to the USFL. Uh, he changed the, completely the fortunes of the franchise, of the city, of, the, of Western New York. Um, Elway, of course, had uh, turned down the Colts and ended up being traded to the Broncos and, and revived the franchise and put it in a position where, um, you know, it was consistently winning and we made the point that if either Kelly or Elway left the bottom would fall out of the franchise fans would be disheartened the team would not be the same on the field etc and and we recognized that stars of that magnitude would be drawn to Los Angeles New York Chicago 
uh, and, and possibly Dallas. Um, everybody else had no chance. Everybody else was going to finish up the track, both because those teams had lots of, of financial resources and, and they had the markets where those guys could make tons of money off the field at a time when players made very little off the field. Gene agreed with all of that, but said, in order to make it happen, I have to have a system that uh, uh, absolutely allows a player under any circumstances, when he hates the coach, hates the city he's playing in, hates the fans, hates the media, be able to pack <laughs> up the station wagon, drive away and say, I'm never coming back here as long as I live. So uh, we said, okay, fair enough. Let's think about it. So we collectively ran a number of different scenarios uh, uh, by Gene. And we came up with the following. A player could only be tagged twice. Once the tag was used on him, whoever the player was, could not be used on anybody else on the team as long as that player remained with the team. And that player would have to be paid the average of the five highest salaries at his position. And it would be guaranteed for everything, uh, injury, skill, etc., the minute he signed the so-called tender. Um, Gene accepted that. He said, okay, that's good. And so we got the franchise player. But you could only use it once, uh, twice in the guy's career, so you could tag him twice. The idea was, that, and, and Gene foresaw this correctly, the idea was that once you tag the player at that high number, the agent would say, okay, if you want this player on a long-term contract, then you're going to have to start at this franchise number. And we want everything guaranteed, just like the franchise tag is guaranteed. So if you want a long-term contract, it's got to be the franchise tag plus for the next five years. Um, those kinds of things didn't quite work out that way, but they were. But it's close. Uh, and then we solved what we called the station wagon problem <laughs> <laughs> by saying, "Okay, if you couldn't reach a long-term agreement when you first tagged him, then he must really want to get in the station wagon and drive away." Uh, if he has a problem with the coach, you better sit down and talk to him about it. Well, that movie's being replayed right now, isn't it? Yeah, we've we've seen this a couple times. Yeah, and uh, and and actually, Jim did had a big problem with with Coach Polo and with the quarterback coach. Uh, so uh, we said, well. We still need the guy. Gene said, no, not, not, if, not if it's an untenable situation. But you could tag him again the second year so you can get ready to replace him. You could tag him and trade him. 
I'll give you the opportunity to replace him, knowing that it's coming. I won't let the agent walk him out the door without any recompense to you, without any notice to you, etc. So that's what we did. We agreed to it. And it went into place. And somewhere um, along around 2000, I guess, I don't know, I don't remember the exact date. Uh, someone who already had a tag in place on a player tagged another player. <laughs> and they went in, or an agent, I think an agent wanted his player tagged. That's what it was. And it went to court. It went, when I say court, uh, in all but one case, every what would be considered a court case, a legal case, goes before an, art, an arbitrator who's agreed to by both sides, by both the Players Association and the NFL Management Council, who is the, the NFL's labor negotiating arm. And that uh, arbitrator's opinion has the force of law. It's just as though a judge handed down the opinion. The only time that I can remember that that an arbitrator's opinion was ever challenged was the Deflategate Brady situation. And by the way, he lost. Brady lost in, in, in on appeal, as we all knew he would, because courts are very loath to overturn agreements that are reached by two parties in a bargaining situation. So the arbitrator said, yeah, you, as long as as long as the guy who's been on the tag agrees to a long term contract, you can you can tag somebody else. You can tag somebody every year. So now I can tag Rick this year. Either release him after the season, or like Dak Prescott, sign him to a long term contract. If I do that before the tagging date and tag somebody else if I want. So it gave the arbitrator's decision, which made no sense to me whatsoever, but <laughs> having been a negotiator, <laughs> thank God I wasn't called as a witness. <laughs> uh, uh, allowed a, 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 a rolling franchise tag every year. Uh, now the union, of course, allowed that and got something back for it. I don't, I don't know what the concession was, but I'm sure it was a big one. Uh, but now it allows teams to tag a different player every year. Uh, you can't have two players tagged at the same time, obviously, but you can tag a different player every year as long as the, as long as you've done it within the, the prescribed dates, which just ended by the way, uh, in the collective bargaining agreement. So that's the history of it. Um, I think it's more fair to management now than it was when we originally negotiated it. Uh, but the union doesn't seem to mind. And, uh, and, and they now have two kinds of tags. One is called the exclusive tag, which gets a guaranteed contract at the five highest, uh, the average of the five highest salaries at the player's position. And they have something called the non-exclusive tag, which guarantees the salary at the average of the 10 highest um, 
salaries at the player's position, but the player can seek an offer in the open market and the club has the opportunity to match it. The old club has the opportunity to match that offer. And if it doesn't, it gets drafts for his compensation in return. There are not very many, um, many of those tags used. Uh, this, you know, the, the, the non movable tag is the one that's used most of the time. Uh, and it's turned out to be good. It's good for the players. And, and now with the, the amount of money that's being paid, players, players used to get annoyed, particularly veteran players, would get annoyed because they'd get tagged and, and, and not have the opportunity in this particular year that they were tagged to get a long-term deal. And the club would say, well, we're not ready to commit to a long-term deal. You're 31 years of age, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But when they figure out, listen, I'm getting $12 million in cash, <laughs> guaranteed. <laughs> Pretty good. It's not so bad, you know. It's not indentured servitude. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I'll take it. Yeah. yeah. High-priced indentured servitude. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there it is. There you go. Bill, you know, one thing that was interesting to me about uh, the situation you described was, as as you've said, the arbitrators are appointed uh, by management and the players. So if somebody, uh, one of the arbitrators does something that's too pro-management or too pro-union, he gets fired right away. So it's most of the time they're kind of splitting the baby, trying to satisfy everybody. So I, I was surprised when that happened because, as you said, the bargaining history didn't really indicate that that anybody that an arbitrator would go out on a limb like that and do something that was so far beyond the four corners. Yeah, the the you can fire one arbitrator every year, and and usually if an arbitrator hands down a very bad decision. He's the one that gets the axe. <laughs> <laughs> so <you know. laughs> seems fair. It's a great, it's a great gig as long as you can hold on to it. All right, on to question number two. One of our listeners wrote on today's podcast. Bill mentioned how you would like to be sure about the BYU quarterback. Is there any way that Bill Polian can describe that process? He mentioned the gentleman that works with Arians that gave a test that gauges arm strength. Interesting. Jets fan. <laughs> okay. Uh, Joe Douglas knows, uh, Joe, uh, I can assure you Joe Douglas knows the drill, so uh, uh, don't worry about that. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the process is as follows. It's, by the way, it's different and much more intense with a quarterback than it is with any other player. With a quarterback, you want to meet with him at, at a minimum a full day, at minimum. You want to do two things. You want to test him physically, and that's what we've taken to call the Tom Moore drill. Tom Moore is, is the guy who, who I know that, that invented it and used it with us when he was the coordinator in Indianapolis for 14 years and Bruce was the quarterback coach. And now he's with Bruce in Tampa Bay. Um, 
Tom starts a quarterback out flat-footed on the goal line and puts a receiver right in front of him at, at five yards. And the quarterback has to stand there without stepping and just deliver the ball. And with each throw, Tom moves the receiver back an additional five yards. So when you get to about 30 yards and the guy is starting to strain a little bit and the revolutions on the ball aren't quite as crisp as they were earlier, you can say, well, there's some difficulty here um, arm, arm strength wise. If he, if he can get it to 40 flat footed, you don't worry about it. The best guys can get it. And, and, and Peyton was one of them can get it to 50 yards flat-footed um, and, and, and with pretty good spin on it. Uh, and then he will take a receiver, stationary receiver, and put him on the sideline about 25 yards away, put the quarterback on the, on, on the far hash. So there's the left hash mark, the right hash mark, the receiver's on the right sideline. And the quarterback has to stand there, take one step, and deliver that 17-yard comeback to the receiver on the far hash. That will tell you, if, if he can make that throw, he can make any throw. And then you might, if you wanted to, put him through some drills with, a receiver, with receivers, plural, um, where you wouldn't ask them to run routes. They run the, the top of the route. They don't run the routes are divided into two in, in, into two uh, areas. One is called the stem, uh, actually three. The release, that's how he escapes press on the line of scrimmage. The stem, which is uh, if he was going to run that 17-yard comeback, he'd run to about 25, push the DB to 25, and then... The break point of the route is at 25, and he comes back to 17. So all we ask the receiver to do is get to the break point, and Tom will indicate that the ball snapped, and he'll come back, and the quarterback will take a three or a five-step drop and deliver the ball. And we'll do that with the whole route tree, generally speaking. Um, and so you get to see the quarterback throw right and left, you get him. You get to see his footwork, and most importantly, you get to see his raw arm strength. Um, we never paid any attention to, to to the gun, because with a quarterback throwing a 25-yard pass for a 17-yard comeback, where do you measure? Where do you measure the velocity on the ball? Right. Right. There's no home plate. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Right. Uh, so. You give it the eye test, and you can. It's very easy to tell. And then the last drill, the one that I like the best, and which is most fun. Occasionally, we would do it at at training camp or in um, in mini camp where the fans were there. They could see it because they love it. You put a barrel at fifty or fifty five yards down the field, and the quarterback takes a seven step drop, and he throws the ball in the barrel. And you would be amazed how many balls go in the barrel. Sometimes clean, like three-point shots. Jim Kelly was the best at it. I mean, he, he could do it blindfolded. Um, 
and, and and it's fun to watch the fans get all excited. But it is a really good drill to throw that fade deep down the field where you're leading the receiver away from the defensive back and putting the ball literally so in the barrel. So when you hear um, when you hear uh, people like Troy Aikman or Tony Romo doing color, and I say, "Oh boy, did he really throw that one in the barrel?" That's what they mean. There you go. Pretty cool. Drop it in the bucket. Now, the 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 uh, the other part of it is mental, and so and football intelligence. So you want to put him on the on the whiteboard, and you want to pepper him with questions. You put up secondaries. You ask him to to tell you where the where the leverage is, where the weak part of this coverage is. Draw up cover two, uh, man. Uh, tell us where where uh, on a on a dig route you have to throw the ball. Uh, you know all of that X's and O's. You do you do that for half a day, and then I was always uh, fond of getting a uh, an interception reel. Every interception that the that the player threw, and have him talk us through the interception. Tell us why it occurred. What did you see? Why did you make that throw? And and lots of times, a guy who's really sharp is going to say, "You know what? I misread the the free safety. I thought it was going to be cover two, and they fooled me, and they went to cover three, and." I left the ball short. Uh, or the receiver, we were supposed to convert this to a comeback instead of a go because we got pressed five yards down the field. We had trail technique five yards down the field. And I I, I threw the, the conversion route and, and he kept going. Now, so if he can explain it to you, then you know that he's that he's clued in, that he knows what he's doing, and that he's found a way to correct his errors. You would be amazed how many do poorly in, in that facet of it, because the agents will prep them up in 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 terms that they'll hire someone to prep them on the coverages. This is cover two. This is cover three. This is cover six. This is quarters. This is they're going to ask you where the weak spot in quarters is. They they can study and get prepped up for that. But when you put the tape on and they're faced with their own mistakes, now they have to justify them. And, and lots of times you'll get, gee, I don't know why I threw that. Or I, I thought the I thought the defensive end was free and things like that. You'll get answers that we go, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah. 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 How did you know he was free? Did you look at him? Because <laughs> you're not supposed to. Right. <laughs> um, or sometimes, not often, because quarterbacks are generally very responsible people. But sometimes you'll get, uh, you know, seven out of 12 times. Well, the receiver ran the wrong route. Or I, I told him to go there, but he decided to go here. You know, blame shifting. That That's a big no-no. Yeah. Speaking of that kind of stuff, Bill, you, 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 yeah, you've talked to us in the past about the psychology and that you used a psychologist. Is is there something else, a dynamic that's going on yeah. where you're trying to read the guy a little bit more as a human, as a leader, as a teammate while all this is happening? I never did um, because I simply figured out that I wasn't smart enough to do it. Um, 
I, I was going to let the psychologist make that decision. She would have tested on paper and then met with the player either earlier or early in the day when you have them in the facility um, and, and you, um, you just rely on her opinion. The only interaction would be the night before at dinner or that evening at dinner if you were keeping them over for, for a day, usually because he's got to see the doctor or something. And that's just, that's getting to know you. You know, you, you, you try just like you you meet somebody for the first time, a, co a potential colleague, you're getting to know them. Tell me about your family. Tell me about the town you grew up in, all those kinds of things. Um, and you try to put the player at ease. Now you you can get a, you, you can get a, uh, an opinion, uh, and, and you can develop an opinion, but I was always leery of that until at least I had an opportunity to read the psychologist's report and talk to her about it. But there was a famous occasion where we were interviewing a, a player who, who, whose name would be well known if I gave it to you. I won't. And, uh, the coach said to him, you know, uh, we expect you to be in two days following the draft, which is the, which is when you're first allowed to report because there's a lot of work to be done. And he said, oh, gee, sorry, coach, I can't make it. My buddies and I have a trip planned to Las Vegas, so uh, I, I won't be in until the week following. <laughs> so <laughs> It's usually a bad sign. It's never a good sign. Let's face it, he, he didn't check the right boxes on that one. And you definitely would know the name if he said it. That on the job interview list of answers in any job is usually a bad one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. True. Although Co Commissioner Taglubo told me a story, which is just the opposite. It's great. And it, and it shows you how different people react. Uh, he was leaving the Department of Defense where he had a, a big job uh, in the Secretary of Defense's office and going to Covington and Burling, which is a famous and prestigious Washington law firm founded by Dean Acheson, the former Secretary of State uh, under President Truman. And, uh, and uh, so he was scheduled to report to uh, Covington and Burling uh, like the last week in June. And, uh, and uh, his wife was expecting and they were moving into a new house and they found that the house needed painting and a lot of other work. Now, Commissioner Tagliabue grew up in a family of construction people, so he's really handy. So he was going to do the work himself. So he asked Covington and Burling if he could report a week late because he had to get the house ready for the new baby and what have you. And, and they said, yeah, fine. And so he came in during the first week of July and by happenstance, uh, was not assigned to the case that he was originally supposed to be on, which had to do with Clorox, but was assigned to the NFL account. Hey, well, there you go. That's it's. Uh... So there you go. There you go. <laughs> it works both ways. Exactly. You, he just needed Hamilton Carruthers to go along with him there. Well, that, yeah, that was the guy that was his boss. But it shows you how much they wanted him. You know, they were convinced that uh, they wanted him to be their quarterback. Absolutely. <laughs> they, they, they don't give most people an extra week in a place like Covington and Burling. 
You never know. All right, here we go. This is a fun one. So what does Bill think of the current overtime system in the NFL? What, if anything, would Bill change? And does Bill have a better idea for a better overall solution? Well, I think the, the better idea is back to the future. I would change it very definitely. Um, as we go to 17 games and maybe 18 in the future and expanded playoffs, et cetera, uh, it needs to change. Uh, we, we can't be playing uh, multiple overtimes, uh, especially when we have short weeks, Sunday, Thursday. Um, that's going to continue. That's not going away. So um, the, the best overtime system is the old overtime system, sudden death. Coin flip. If you win the coin flip and you get the ball and you take it on down the field and you kick a field goal, you win the game and go home. Why? Because A, there's nothing wrong with ties. And B, we don't want the players out there for 30 more plays. That's just inviting injury. And, uh, and as a result, um, this, this overtime system that we, the competition committee grudgingly, uh, with our jaws locked, created where everybody gets a chance now at the ball, unless you give up a touchdown on the first possession, uh, is scheduled, was originally scheduled to go 15 minutes. And we had, if I'm not mistaken, three overtime games that went the full 15 minutes. That's unacceptable. And many of us, both the committee members and I was out of the game at the time, but uh, I, myself and many others spoke to the commissioner and said, hey, 15 minutes is too long, cut it down to 10. So that's what they did. That's why we have the 10-minute overtime now, so that it, it doesn't expose the players to, uh, to too long and too many plays. But the best system is the sudden death system. You change that for the playoffs, obviously, and that's fine. You, you go till you have a winner in the playoffs. But uh, the, the, you know, the old system I liked, the only, you know, it was, there were people who wanted everybody to have a participation trophy, you know, <laughs> everybody, everybody should possess the ball. Oh, okay. You know. Fire up the DeLorean. We're going back in time, Rick. Absolutely, we are. The Edsel. Take the Edsel out of the garage. The uh, the Studebaker. Um, did you hear about that one that was floated the other day? It was sort of like a buy-sell agreement in a, in a contract where uh, one team would name the yard line the ball would go on, and the other team would say offense or defense. Preposterous! I mean, just—that's I, <laughs> I, what I was hoping. That's what I was hoping you'd say because I thought it was crazy. What? What, what the hell? I, I don't even understand how it would work. <laughs> we want the ball here, and then you do this. Yeah, what am I going to do if I win the toss? I say I want the ball on your ten. Exactly, and then yeah. <laughs> and I'll go on offense. I want to be on offense. And these guys were saying it'll be so interesting to see at what's the break point when you'd rather be on offense. Or oh be my lord! Yeah. <laughs> I just I, I needed I I yes, I needed you to to put the the pin in that one so all right let's go on <laughs> okay um, interesting one uh, what's your favorite NFL broadcast team just as a as a viewer uh, and as a follow up what's your favorite broadcast team of all time well I I think uh, I think the the guys that that do it now for the networks. Um, you know, I, I really like J 
Joe Buck and Troy. I think Jimmy Nance and, and uh, Tony and Tony are great. Tony's still close enough to the field that you know he has a unique feel for the game. And neither of those groups deal in stories or a lot of stories that they they give you the game. I love Al as a as a play by play broadcaster. I think he's he's as close to the guys that I revered when I was a kid um, as any that's around. I, I really, of course, Al and I are not that far apart in age, so <laughs> he, uh, you know, he he, uh, he remembers Mel Allen and Red Barber and people like that. And Al comes from a baseball background too, which is, which is, I, I think, is really helpful. As does Joe Buck, um, because it, it it helps to understand the pacing of the game. I've been a color commentator on radio myself, which is a, a different deal altogether. Uh, but but you have to understand the pacing of the game. Uh, I think Mike Tirico is phenomenal. NBC got a huge bargain when they when they got him and, and ESPN really has never replaced him. Um, and he and John were terrific. Um, and then all time, I'm going to give you two names football wise that many people may not even know. But I, I think they were phenomenal. And I think that the analyst was the first really terrific into it, um, uh, well-spoken, but to the point analyst, Kurt Gowdy and Paul Chrisman on the original AFL broadcast of ABC. Yeah, the cowboy. I also think Frank Gifford was great as, as, a, as a play-by-play announcer. I mean, it's hard for a player to become a play-by-play announcer, and Frank did it, mastered it, was phenomenal. Um, unfortunately, you know, that was a television show and not a game broadcast. So he had his hands full just trying to yeah. give you the down and distance. <laughs> right. <laughs> with, with the other guys in the booth, for sure. Yeah, they were having a good time. And, and you know, no, I, I, there's nobody I dislike. It's just that because I'm a tried and true football person, I, I, I want the game devoid of, of stories. Uh, and, and yet... Having been a, a broadcaster myself, I know that the that, that the average fan likes stories and, and and that's part of the broadcast. Hey Bill, one name I'll throw out there for you when you talk about that that minimalist approach, Ray Scott. Well, as a play by play, yeah, he the voice of God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was It would just happen. Fantastic touchdown and Ray Scott would go, Bart Starr. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or star to horning. <laughs> yeah, star to horning. Right, exactly. We, we were lucky here in D.C. with our local broadcast where we would turn down the TV and turn up the radio with Sonny, Sam, and Frank. Yeah, they were great. They were great. Jurgensen and Huff were as good as it gets. When I was an advanced scout, I would listen to the broadcast during during the game because you, you'd find out some things that you otherwise you know couldn't see with your eyes. And I always look forward to coming to Washington to, to hear that. 
Little SJ9. All right. Well, this is not my question, but I'm going to listen with bated breath. How would you recommend a fan who wanted to get into scouting as a career go about doing it? Well, it's hard to do. Uh, it's harder now than when I broke in. That's for sure, because there are more people who want to do it and more people who are working at the college level as personnel analysts and who want to move up to the NFL. Um, but, but the only real way to do it is to do it. And I, I get 50 letters a year from young people asking me, how do I get into scouting business? And, and my answer is go volunteer somewhere. Go volunteer if, at your local high school. Uh, go volunteer, uh, you know, if you have a small college in your community, they can always use help uh, as an advanced scout or a guy who breaks down film. Be in the, in, in the football milieu. That's how you meet people. That's how you get to know people. That's how you find out when, when there are openings. Um, it's hard to come in from the outside. It's just, it, it's almost impossible uh, unless you're very fortunate. I, I was exceedingly fortunate. My college coach who, was in, who, who, who wanted me to go into scouting and, and my boss, George Paterno at the Merchant Marine Academy wanted me to go into scouting. They both felt that I had a unique talent for it. They were right. I didn't know it, but they were <laughs> at the time, but they were right. Um, uh, he became, his name was Bob Windish. He became the personnel director with the Montreal Alouettes. And I was at a football working in an ad business in New York. And he called me up and he said, you need to be back in football and I'm going to pay you $500 a year. And you go and, and, and scout every giant and jet game and Eagles and Redskins and so forth. We'll cover all your expenses. And, um, and so I couldn't wait to do it and did it. And then at the end of that season, Bob called and they were in the playoffs and Coach Levy would like to meet you. So I went up and I met with Coach Levy. He had read my scouting reports. Only Marv Levy would read scouting reports from a, <laughs> a scout that he never heard of before. But he said, these are terrific. You know, you have a talent for this. We want you with the organization. So now you know the rest of the story. I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Yep. Uh, but that's hard. You know, that's a fairy story. That's hard to, that's hard to, yeah. uh, to replicate. Those are hard to come by. They are. The, the, uh, the, 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 the threshold of desire, I always think, uh, Bill, our pal Ernie Acorsi, when he went to work for Colts and worked free for the first year and slept in his car yeah. when he was going around. I mean, you have to want it in this business. So You do. You do. Yeah, you do. And it's hard work. It's hard work. And everyone starts out as a road scout. Nobody, you know, people will often stop me and say, how do I become a pro scout? That seems like a great job. Right. I said, well, you start out being an area scout in Mississippi. Right. <laughs> and and you stay at Motel 6 and <laughs> and you go you go from school to school and you get home once every 4 weeks. If you can handle that, then they might consider moving you up. <laughs> Some good eating though. Dozy place. Lots of things you can hit up. 
scouts scouts do not have good diets a and b that's they know true. every place everywhere that's true <laughs> and but you do learn geography you, you do know that paducah is right next to murray so yes that's true there's a famous place in tuscaloosa called dreamland it's a ribs oh, place it's the best and every scout in america knows Dreamland. Uh, it's a it's now a shrine to Nick Saban every time you go in. <laughs> yeah. But it, the ribs are unbelievable. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Next question from one of our listeners. What was Bill's favorite season, not including the Super Bowl year, and why? I would think it was 1988 when uh we first made the playoffs in Buffalo. We went all the way to the championship game that year against the Cincinnati Bengals, who won the AFC. It was a great Bengals team. Sam Weiss was the coach. Boomer Esiason was the quarterback. But we had been so downtrodden, 2-14 and 14 for consecutive years, in consecutive years, 84 and 85. Um, 86, we might have been 3-13 and 13 or something like that. It was awful. And... Um, you know, the media was down on the franchise. We'd lost Joe Cribbs. We'd lost Jim Kelly, uh, you know, to the USFL. It, it was just, it was hard. And and Buffalo had become a joke. You know, Johnny Carson, all, all the late night comics, when they needed a laugh line during the football season, let's go to Buffalo, you know. During the winter, when there were heavy snows, there were you know there were blizzards from time from almost every year. They'd be Buffalo would be the the brunt of, of those jokes, and uh, and then in the process in the late seventies and early eighties, the steel industry uh, tanked, it disappeared, uh, went to China, and and close to. Uh, 200,000 people lost their jobs in Buffalo. And uh, and many, many people left Buffalo for other places because there was no work. So it, it the football team reflected the, the nadir of the community and the downtrodden feeling in the community. And uh, and the, the, the columnists there uh, wrote, uh, at, at the end of one of the two and 14 seasons, I can't remember when it was, might have been 85 or 86. Um, he said, let them leave. I, I hope they leave and go somewhere else. They're an embarrassment. We, we don't need them. And and that was that was, you know, for someone who was working for the Bills, that was heartbreaking. And uh, and then. Um, I got named GM in 86 because nobody else wanted the job. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Talk about your turn in the barrel, right? <laughs> and, uh, and then fortunately was able to bring Coach Levy in in 87. And Jim Kelly came in 86. And uh, all of a sudden everything turned around. And then in 87, we had a good season. The media didn't see us getting better, but we knew we were getting better. We knew in the building, on the practice field, in the office that we were getting better. As a matter of fact, there is a, a, a semi-famous incident that I described in my first book called The Game Plan. 
Marv had these, uh, Coach Levy had these great sayings that, that got right to the point. What it takes to win is simple, but it isn't easy. And, and he, he never wanted penalties and he never wanted dirty play. And so his mantra was, don't be dumb and don't be dirty. <laughs> so we're out on the field practicing. And in those days, you had a big taxi squad and injured reserve players could practice while they were on injured reserve. Can't do that anymore. That was called stashing, and I played guilty to it. Now, the statute of limitations has run. It has. So, You're good. You're clean. Yeah, I'm clean. I, 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 and, and Coach Shula gave me a dispensation years later. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that we had a lot of players that were on injured reserve that were practicing, and they were young players that we were trying to develop, uh, hoping that, that you know they, they would become good players. One of them was Martin Mayhew, who's who's presently the general manager of the Washington uh, Washington football team. And we wish him very well. Absolutely. And um, and so two linebackers, I think it was Shane Conlon and, and, and uh, Scott, uh, uh, oh, I can't think of his last name right now, were, were kneeling next to each other on the sideline. And a couple of rookies got into a beef. They were the defensive rookies were servicing the offense. And they got into a little dust up with one of the offensive players. And uh, the two veterans on the sideline hollered right away, hey, don't be dumb and don't be dirty. Cut that out. <laughs> and I couldn't wait to tell Marvin after practice. I said, coach, they bought in. They're believers. That's great. We're getting it done. And and then the following year, 88, we made a great run to the championship game. And the city came alive. The area came alive. It was unbelievable. Um, the first, uh, I can't remember whether it was the first, I think it was the Miami regular season game. It was the last game of the regular season. We were playing for everything. Home field advantage. Well, it wasn't home field advantage because we didn't go to the, we, we didn't go to the, uh, we, we had to go on the road to Cincinnati. So um, it must have been the first playoff game. It was the, it, against, it was, it was against Houston. First playoff game in then rich stadium history. And uh, the, the, the city was electric. And we won the game and the fans stormed the field. No, I know what it was. We clinched the AFC East against the Jets. In overtime, Freddie Smurlis blocked a jet field goal attempt that would have won the game. And we won the game. The fans stormed the field, took the goalpost down. Commissioner Roselle was apoplectic. He was on the phone to me that <laughs> night. <laughs> we had to bring in the, the, the sheriff's department on horses for the next <laughs> playoff game to prevent the fans from storming the field. But it was the happiest moment uh, that, 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 that anybody's ever had there, you know, other than obviously going to the Super Bowls. And the, uh, they tore the goalpost down and they paraded it around the stadium and then they, they kind of left remnants of it all over the place. So the, the stadium operations staff gave me a, a piece of the goalpost mounted it on a plaque as a memento of, of the, that great victory. Hey, Bill, I remember to show how far they came in the continuum of your story. One of Johnny Carson's lines, he comes on and says, 
The mayor of Buffalo has a new crack snow removal plan. It's called spring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There That's you partially go. true, too, by the way. <laughs> but <laughs> Buffalo has the best snow removal they do. of any city in America. Oh, yeah. They actually do. Absolutely. Yeah. Very true. All right, here we go. So what other options did the Colts look at at quarterback in 2011? Were there any behind-the-scenes trade options that we never heard about? Uh, yes, it was with Denver, and I, 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 we, I didn't prep for this, so I can't remember the name of the player. He ended up, I think, actually playing with Buffalo for a little while at the end of his career. Was um, it J.P. Lossman? No, it was not. J.P. Lossman was drafted by Buffalo originally and fell on his face. Nice try. Uh, long after we left. Yeah, I screwed that up. Screwed that up. Um, but there, Denver had two quarterbacks, and they couldn't decide which one w- was going to be the guy. Oh, was it was it Kyle Orton? It was Kyle Orton. That's there it. we go. All right. Came back on the second try. There you go. One out of two ain't bad. Thank you for reminding me. And so I offered John Elway a, 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 just after um, the lockout ended and we, when we knew Peyton was, was going to have some difficulty, uh, not to the extent that we didn't know the extent that it was going to go, but I offered John a, a, you know, a, a really good choice uh, and was prepared to do more uh, for Orton. And uh, and he said, we, I can't do it because we haven't decided who the quarterback's going to be. You know, somebody's going to win the job. I can't I simply can't trade him. And I, you know, I respected that. But that's that's the that's the one that that got away, if you will. I know we don't like stories or hypotheticals, but it would be interesting, considering it was Denver, if Kyle Orton's the quarterback in Indianapolis. Does Peyton Manning never go to Denver the following year? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, interesting. Yep. Yeah. Ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas, right? Exactly. Speculative, speculative history. Oh, oh, I, I really like this one, and I'm sure with our listenership, this is going to be an important question. And that is, what three books should every aspiring NFL GM read? Well, the the first one is called When Hollywood Was a, it, it Had a King, and it's the autobiography of Lou Wasserman, who was the, quote, agent to the stars. He started... Um, MCA? Uh, MCA, yes, and, uh, and represented Ronald Reagan, including during the time Ronald Reagan was president. He was... Lou Wasserman was a, 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 a you know, a, a, a little known advisor to him. Uh, but that tells you all about the star system in Hollywood, uh, the labor issues in Hollywood, uh, how Wasserman and others dealt with their clients, positioned their clients. It was it's exceedingly valuable because if you're a GM, you're going to have to if not negotiate contracts, you're going to have to approve them. So um, that would be absolute, an absolute must. Um, and then the other absolute must, and I can't recall who the, the uh, writer is right now. It's not a, 
Um, he's not a big name sports writer, but it's the biography and it's very long of Branch Rickey because Branch Rickey is the, is the patron saint of all general managers. He's the guy who started the farm system in baseball. Um, he's the guy who started measuring speed. He's the guy who started analytics with a man named Alan Roth, who became the Dodgers, quote, statistician. Uh, he built the St. Louis Cardinals uh, with Marty Marion and Stan Musial, et cetera. He built the Boys of Summer, the Brooklyn Dodgers with, you know, Carl Erskine and Gil Hodges and Roy Campanella and Pee Wee Reese, uh, and, and then finished his career actually with the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates and then started a new league, which caused the, uh, uh, which caused the National League to expand. That's how the Mets were born. They were afraid that Branch Rickey was going to start a new league that would, would uh, uh, position a, a team in New York that would, that would uh, uh, steal the thunder from the National League, who, of course, the Dodgers and Giants had left. There was a vacancy there. Uh, so he's, a, he's the most consequential team builder, in my opinion, in the history of sports. And then the third one, I would, you know, there's, there's, there's lots written by people like myself. My book is called The Game Plan. I mean, you can pick it up if you want to. It's still in print. Bill Walsh wrote a terrific book called The Score Takes Care of Itself. Uh, Marv Levy uh, wrote Where Would You Rather Be? All of those books are marvelous. Um, but I think the one that was most beneficial for me was Red on Roundball. Red Auerbach, who created literally, literally from whole cloth, the Boston Celtics. Um, he's the guy that created that franchise. It was, it was about to go under, and he came in and took it over and built it, and he gives you all of his, all of the, 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 the issues that he faced and how he did it and, and how he dealt with players, and, and Red's approach to players um, is, uh, when I read that book, I said, that's, that's the way, if I ever get a chance, I'm going to do it. Uh, because he valued the players greatly. For example, every former Celtic, uh, when he came back to Boston, if he had his family or whomever with him, all he had to do was call Red's office and he would have tickets to the game. Every former Celtic could have a ticket whenever he wanted it, things like that. Um, so I would say those three books would be the, those were the most consequential for me, I guess, is the way. And when, uh, and when young guys in the business ask me that question, uh, and many do, uh, I always, I always mention those three books. Those, those are, those are terrific suggestions and not obvious ones for the football guys. So, you know, that's great. I think. My friend, my friend Brian Buck, I got to plug this book because it's great. My friend Brian Burke, who was the, among many jobs that he had, was the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs and, and won a uh, Stanley Cup with the Anaheim Ducks, just wrote a book called Burke's Law, uh, which I would, I would heartily recommend too because it gives you a look from the, the hockey side of things. Those were some scary teams, yeah. And it's, and it's also a play on words about a – TV show that yes. only you and I remember, Bill, starring Gene Barry, who was also Bat Masterson. Yeah. Well, Brian has happened to have gone to Harvard Law School, but that's it. But it was a play on words. You're right. 
There we go. All right, so this is a fun one. So I'm going to actually add something to the end of it too. So how does the process work for a team to go through a uniform change like the Bengals are doing? And if you had to pick a uniform combo in football, what would be your favorite? Well, I am as old school as old school gets. So the New York Giants of my youth, the Green Bay Packers of my youth, which are exactly today what they were then, just like the Yankee pinstripes and Dodger blue, uh, that those are my favorites. And when the Giants went back to the retro uniforms for good, you know, with the with the the old blue and the and the red and white road uniforms, dynamite. Uh, the Cleveland Brown uniforms originally, the original Cleveland Browns were great. They've been messing around trying to yeah, arrive at some conclusion, which doesn't work. Uh, the way the way the the way the process goes nowadays, it requires almost 24 months to make a uniform change. You have to notify the league. You have to notify Nike. Uh, and then you sit down with the league and the league and Nike have design people who uh, will show you designs. And um, if a football person is involved, it'll probably take a little more time because the designs are, shall we say, not traditional. <laughs> and uh, although Nike is really, it, it, I think, trending toward traditional. And as you know, Scott, uh, there's nothing more traditional than Penn State. It's the best. That's why I was hoping you were going to say. It is. It is. Sure. All blue, no plates. Let's get it going. Football paterno style. No names. No names, yeah. Black shoes, you know. <laughs> uh, nothing better. Nothing better. So and and of course the Crimson Tide, Alabama Crimson Tide, because Nick yeah. is a yeah, okay. throwback guy like ourselves. Um, but properties will give you designs, and then you can work with them, and 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 eventually you'll get a, a storyboard that that will show you um, what you want, and then if you like that, then you you go to the manufacturer. I won't mention it's not manufactured directly by Nike, but you, you go to the Nike goes to the manufacturer and 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 they'll do uh, they'll do mockups for you. They'll do actual jerseys. And there's a funny story. When we went to the Carolina Panthers, I kind of liked the uniforms. Um, I thought they really did a nice job with them. The Richardson family designed them and they worked with properties. And it, it's now called NFL Ventures, by the way. It used to be called NFL Properties. But the design team came in and showed us the uniforms uh, in a in a a room in the in the office building we were occupying, which had fluorescent lighting, and you know, and a little bit of sun coming through the windows, but not much. Right. And uh, and Panther Blue is is. I don't want to say it's iridescent, but it's real. It's really shiny, and 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 it, and I thought it could be difficult 
on camera depending the time of day and so forth. So I said, have these uniforms been tested uh, under the lights? Had they been tested on television? Uh, have they been tested at one in the afternoon? You know, we play one, four, and eight. Um, and uh, the people on the other side said uh, kind of, uh, well, uh, uh. Uh, uh, no, uh, uh, we really hadn't thought of that. We that, That's not part of our uh, protocol. They blamed the receiver for running the wrong route. <laughs> so I said, well, it's going to be now. <laughs> so fortunately... There was a stadium, a high school stadium, not far from the uh, office called Memorial Stadium, which had lights. So we called them and we asked them if we could use it for, a, you know, a, a, a three period test. So we went over at one in the afternoon and we had brought our, our, our uh, video people over and they put the video on and and and. There was some bleed at one in the afternoon when the sun was in a certain place. Four looked pretty good, uh, but there was a ton of bleed when we got under the lights. <laughs> so uh, they had to go back and, and it required nothing major to change it up. But they hadn't thought about uh, running that test. I suspect they do They do now with, with everyone, but that's how it's done. Yeah. Uh you know, Bill, the, another thing about that you taught me in our foray into the AAF was that it's really one mill. <laughs> no matter who's putting out the uniforms, you got to get them out of Wisconsin. Yes, yes, that's correct. And by the way, the reason it takes close to 24 months is because Nike, now the, the, the owner of the rights to the jerseys, has to clean out all the old inventory that they have on shelves uh, throughout America. So you do have to give them time to do that. In the old days, you just snapped your fingers and said, we're changing the jerseys, but not so much anymore since they've become a, a high-ticket item. Yeah. All right. Here, here's one that gives us a, a nice panoply of the history of the, of, of, the, of the league. In your opinion, who are some of the more underrated players in the NFL now or in the past? Well, now is it's it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to pinpoint a couple. I think there's you know there, there's so much coverage nowadays that it's it's just hard to say this guy's underrated and, and if he is underrated it's because they don't get much exposure. Um, Yannick Ngakwe was that way when he was in Jacksonville. No one knew Jacksonville existed, so he didn't get a lot of a lot of airtime and a lot of pub. But once he was traded um, to to Minnesota and then moved on to Baltimore, people recognized how good he was. So that's one I would I, I would think of right right away. I think there are many old time players. Well. I'll give you one that should be in the Hall of Fame, and I'm hoping that we can get him in before too long, and that's Steve Tasker. There is no special teams player in the Hall of Fame, uh, a man who simply made his living on special teams. Steve Chaster changed the game in every way on special teams. He blocked kicks. He returned kicks. Uh, he, he, he sprung people for big returns. Uh, 
he was he changed caused fumbles he changed the game dramatically and, and repeatedly he was the pro bowl i think he went to eight pro bowls and was the pro bowl mvp twice right so i mean that that's really saying something so he's a guy whose total career has been underrated by the hall of fame uh, selectors because there's a bias against quote special teams players. Um, I also think Del Schaffner, uh, a receiver with the New York Giants who had five wonderful years with the Giants and five sort of good but not phenomenal years with the Rams before coming to the Giants because he was there were a couple injuries that got in the way. But his time with the New York Giants with Y.A. Tittle as the quarterback was was incredible. I mean, he really had he he belongs in the Hall of Fame and and he didn't make it with the with the centennial class. And I feel badly about that. Uh, I, to me, he was a, a really, really outstanding player. He, he was. Remember, remember those, some of those past combinations of him catching those very well touchdowns yep. from him. Yep. Yep. All right, this is a fun one, Bill. Here we go. This is a multi-sport question. Can Bill talk about some of his favorite golf memories, who are some of the coolest people he's gotten to play with, and share a few of his favorite golf stories? Well, I've gotten to play with a lot of wonderful people in in, uh, some charity events over over the years. Um, Two that stand out for me would be John Denver, at a uh, the famous singer at a charity event in Buffalo, uh, which Elijah Pitts, our running back coach, put on, and um, I I played with John for the entire round, and he's a a dedicated environmentalist, and so in addition to being a pretty good golfer, as we were walking or riding along, if he saw a stray piece of paper or some garbage or something on the course, he'd get out of the car, pick it up, put it in his bag. <laughs> <laughs> and and empty it at the at the next trash can. It was really uh, it was really quite a uh, uh, an opportunity and, and quite an adventure. Um, <laughs> and, and I was very impressed with his sincerity. Uh, and and it, by the way, a pretty good golfer, but much better than I. Um, and then the other one that really uh, two that really stand out, which are somewhat related, is. Uh, uh, playing with Bob Cousy at a charity event in Rochester, New York. It was for a camp, good times and good days and special times, a cancer kid, uh, a camp for kids with cancer, excuse me. And uh, Bob and I got to play together for 18 holes, and he told me some marvelous stories, <clears throat> excuse me, of his upbringing in New York. We're both native New Yorkers, he from Queens, I from the Bronx, his time at Holy Cross, and most importantly, his time with um uh, the, the Boston Celtics under Red Auerbach when that dynasty began. Um, and at that time, he was an 18 handicap, which was hard to believe, but he just finished coaching um, at Boston College. So um, I, I, I'm sure as time went on and he played more, he was a lot better. Uh, I wasn't anywhere near an 18, by the way. I was on the <laughs> high side of that by, by a lot. I don't know. I've heard some things. No, 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 no. And then uh, the, the final one was, was typical of me. Um, I was in the Eisenhower cabin at the Masters, my first Masters, 
went in there to see Commissioner Goodell, who was in there having a meeting with some people and invited me in. And uh, and I was I just, you know, thrilled to be there, stunned to be in that building, stunned to be at the Masters. It was a lifelong uh, kind of bucket list experience. And um, so I, I was, you might say walking on air, but not quite. And I, went, I excused myself, went to leave, walked out, and there's some steps that are that are not um, real steep, but but they're there, and and I didn't realize it, so I missed a step <laughs> and kind of fell forward, and, and bumped into someone with a green jacket on, righted myself, looked up, excused myself. I said, "Oh, excuse me," and then there was a long pause, and I said, "Mr. Nicholas." <laughs> I had accidentally bumped into Jack Nicholas, who was walking by, <laughs> and I was I was in in, in awe and shock, and uh, and and Mrs. Nicholas looked at me as though I had eight heads, you know, <laughs> who was this guy that came flying out of the Eisenhower cabin. So uh, I thanked them and we moved on. And I it, it, not five minutes later, I ran into Jim Nance. <laughs> who I know quite well, obviously, from his time as an NFL broadcaster. And I told him the story. And he said, boy, I wish I had a picture of that. I said, I do too. <laughs> pretty good. There's nothing better than your first Masters, but even better when you fall into the greatest golfer of all time. Yes, yes. Thank God I didn't knock him over. <laughs> yes. Could you imagine the headlines on that one? No, I can't. I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> Yeah, no, that would have uh, that would have been a bad one. All right, well, a couple things I wanted to ask you about. I I know that you're much like me in terms of your golf game, where you're a bit of a tinkler, a uh, bit not tinkler. You're a bit of a tinkerer. Probably uh, both. Yeah, pro- <laughs> I tend to be more in the uh, the the latter, not the former. Uh, what tools or training aids have you been using lately? I know we've got a new sponsor on the show, and I think we wanted to highlight a couple of the cool things they've got going on. Well, I, the things that I've, I've heard about Imagine Golf uh, really excite me. If you're a, I like to call it a degenerate golfer, meaning a guy that is never going to get any better, but loves to play the game. And I'm, I'm one of those. Um, this app has downloads that are called the Drive Drive, which will give you excerpts from all the great golf books that really avid golfers read. Harvey Penick's Little Red Book, Ben Hogan's Five Lessons, uh, How I Play Golf by Tiger Woods, Don't Choke by Gary Player, and they give you the best uh, tidbits from each book. Now, if you're like me uh, and you you start hooking the ball into the woods, you go home, you rummage through the bookcase, and say, where's Hogan's five lessons? I have to figure out how I can, I can stop hooking the ball. <laughs> well, and you can't find it because maybe your wife threw it away or, or one of the kids took it. You can't lay your hands on it when you need it. <laughs> this gives you, uh, Imagine Golf gives you the ability to call it up right away and, uh, and, 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 and get all of this wonderful information at your fingertips. It really is awesome, guys. We cannot recommend it enough. I mean, it's truly become the number one app for the mental game. We have all used it. Uh, They've got over 200,000 downloads, tons of five-star reviews, 
and just having, as Bill said, having access to these three minute snackable bites of some of the greatest books ever. If, if only we had some of uh, Bryson's snacks so we could be as yoked as that guy, <laughs> if they were, if they were giving that up. I mean, it's, uh, you know, Bill and I are trying, we're going to, we're going to be like Bryson in T minus three or four years when we go through the lift and eat program, but we cannot recommend it to you guys enough. Uh, if you have time this week, download Imagine Golf. If you're out on the course, it'll make all the difference in the world. Well, there you go. All right. Well, we're going to bring it home with this final question and ask Bill anything three. Here we go. Does Bill think that there will be more cap casualties, cut, cap casualty cuts this year, in particular June 1st than ever before? And if so, would this be a year where a GM could get better long-term deals at lower rates of pay? Um, I don't think you'll get long-term deals at lower rates. I think you'll get one-year deals with very serviceable veteran players at reasonable rates, but you won't get long-term deals at low rates. No agent and no player is, is going to go for that because they all know that the cap is going up. The only thing we don't know is how much. Right. So yeah. players who, for very good reasons, can't get long-term deals this year will say, okay, I'll take a one-year deal and, and then I'll go, I'll go to free agency again next year. And, and if your offer is a fair offer, you know, I'll, on a one-year deal, I'll take it. Um, now, that'll be done much later in the process, maybe even after the draft, which is not typical. But, but uh, there's going to be a lot of players out on the market, as we know today there. I mean, players are coming out every, every second, it seems. Um, it appears the Chiefs don't even have tackles anymore. Yeah. Correct. They don't. They're going to have to go get some. But the, the fact of the matter is that there'll be a lot of players who will get one-year deals, but, uh, but they won't sign long-term deals at short money. That makes no sense. All right, gang. Well, that is a capper on Ask Bill Anything 3. As always, if you have questions for the Audible or things you want us to cover, hit us up on Twitter at IFBillPolian, and we will be sure to get to it. As per usual, these are some of my favorite things we do. Thank you for doing this today. As always, Bill. Thanks, Rick. Uh, any last words for the crew? Mask up. Double mask up. Mask up and backs up. It's, it's coming. All right, gang. happening gang we hope you enjoyed the show today we learned a lot we learned about who bill likes to play golf with we learned about some things that happen in the hot sticky summer season and you know what the one thing you don't want happening as you enter into the sweaty days of spring and summer that's ball chafing ball chafing will literally get you every time and the number one way i personally put an end to that is the crop preserver at manscaped manscaped has so many male grooming products that are game-changing for all of your male grooming habits. So no matter what you're looking for, whether you're looking for a way to shave, whether you're looking for a way to tone, preserve, you're looking for some other things like they're amazing boxers, look no further than Manscaped. And we have a special offer for you today. 
Get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code Pauline at Manscaped. That's right. I did not stutter. 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com when you use the code Pauline. That's P-O-L-I-A-N. So what are you waiting for? It's time to turn the team in your pants around with Manscaped. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.